Well, there's nothing like uh, having your friend ask you to fill in for him. And then when you ask, hey, what, what, uh, where are you guys? What should I preach on? And he says, uh, Job. <laughs> Thanks, bud. Good. So you gave me an easy one. Um, I'm just obviously kidding, of course. But um, I'm always humbled when Taylor asked me to come and entrust not just this moment, but you to uh, any teaching, anything that I might have to offer. You can decide for yourself uh, how much that is, but um, I would I would like to, if you don't mind, to just pray again quickly. Uh, it's a heavy text, and I know that, and so I um, just want to ask the Lord to really be with us and minister to us. So, Father, we ask you in Jesus' name, please, to be here, that uh, we would really see, God, what you have for us in Job and his example and what you have to say to us. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would Learn to discern you, Lord, when it feels like there's nothing but darkness around us. I pray that you would use this to make us compassionate, empathetic people, and that, God, you might use us to show your love to a very confused, very hurting world. So we ask you, Lord, in this time to be with us, that you would surround us and protect us, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. We ask that in the name of Christ. Amen. Being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheek. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that somebody or something was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or the person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he really had no idea how long it had been there. It darted into his mind that he'd heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror, but now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he has already felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. Now, if the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a break in a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and this unseen companion walked and breathed beside him until at last he could stand it no more. Who are you? He said. And that's a question that hangs heavy. And it's a natural one for any of us who feel exhausted, feel like our life, whatever it has become, is it's just dark. We can't seem to make out the edges of anything. And we wonder if at all where God is, because at best he seems to be this disconnected, shadowy figure sort of stalking us on the fringes. 
And this portion of a story I read to you from the book, The Horse and His Boy, we're going to return to that throughout this. But it paints a picture for us when we feel lost on our way, unable to find any sort of way out of this. We wonder if God is present at all or if it's something a little bit more sinister. Is this a thing? Is this a person? Is this something that's come against me? Have I brought this on myself? And the book of Job is a book that wrestles with this same tension. When we see suffering in our lives, we want to believe that it's so simple and so cut and dry. If I just do X, Y, and Z, then it goes away. But part of the reason why we've been given the book of Job is because there really is, there's no cut and dry. There's very little black and white in this life. And especially when we get to the subject of suffering, there are only hard answers. There are only difficult truths that we have to wrestle with. In a book like Job, it's clustered into a collection of other books in the Bible that are called the wisdom literature. It includes Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. And the reason they're called wisdom literature is because they're books that wrestle with the complexity of life in this world and reject any simple answer especially theological ones. Because when we're in the midst of suffering, what we want more than anything is to just figure out what caused this, what can I do about it, and let's be done with it. But that's not how life works. Any of you, if you've suffered through anything or are in the midst of it at all right now, you know that there's something, you can't just put it off like you take off a shirt. You can't just figure out what went wrong. There's more to it. There's more behind it. And I know Taylor touched on a lot of that. The, the, the things that we suffer in this world, it's more than just circumstances. It's more than just accidents that happen to us. There's so many lever, levels in this world and so many uh, variables at play that it's hard to really know where our suffering begins and where it ends. What's the cause and what's the solution and how do we make sense of all of this? And so a book like Job, it's meant to wrestle with this. And we actually see that sort of personified this tension between his friends who want to believe everything is just black and white. There's sort of this karma to the world. And so if you just figure out what's wrong, make it right, your suffering will be over. And Job is the one saying, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's true. Because I don't... I'm not aware of anything I've done wrong. It's this clash between a, a, a karma-filled worldview and the dynamic worldview of faith. There's so much more going on here. There's so much more at play. And so if we're going to be a people of faith and wrestle with this subject specifically of suffering and figuring out suffering in our own lives, we have to reject those simplistic answers. And there's a difference, truthfully, truly, between simplistic and simple. Simplistic answers are like students who never do their homework, don't pay attention in class, and when it comes time for a quiz, they expect it to just be easy and to get the A. But simple answers, those are like the students who, who fight, who work, who push through the complexity and the confusion and the difficulty of it, and what they find on the other side is a new clarity and a new depth. Simplistic answers are caricatures. But simple answers come with scars. And the book of Job is the pursuit of a simple answer. And what's so difficult 
what I uh, should say, what Job is facing here in chapters 9 and 10, particularly, is the silence of God in the midst of his suffering. That it seems like all of these horrible things have fallen on him, and he's wondering, not just where did God go, but is he even listening anymore? If only God would speak, that would just, that would clear everything up, but he hasn't, at least not yet, at least not this, at this point. And you might be in the same place where you're wondering, if only God, if God would just say something, it would help even just a little bit, but he said nothing. And it reminds us that with Job and our own experience that suffering can silence the certainty that God listens. A certainty that we can take for granted. It can silence that certainty, and yet what we see in Job, and what we can learn from these two chapters, is that it provides us also the opportunity to wrestle well. It gives us a chance to learn how to wrestle well, because Job isn't going to tie things up in neat little bows. As a preacher, I want to be able to say, man, there's all these answers to you, and so we're going to find them in here. But the truth is, Job doesn't offer solutions. And that's what we have to fight against. We want to find those solutions so badly rather than learning to wrestle well and to allow God to do what he wants to do, what he's trying to do in the midst of this. And so let's, let's look at a couple things, four things that Job can teach us about suffering well. First one starting here in chapter 9, verse 1. that Job is responding to his friend Bildad. His speech is in chapter 8. And the, the heart of it is, comes in verse 3 in chapter 8. Does God pervert justice? Such as, does God get things wrong? Is he a corrupt judge? Imprisons the wrong guy? And so Job is starting to respond to him here in chapter 9. And he says in verse 2, I know that it's so. He's saying, I know God is not a corrupt judge. I, I know that. And I haven't said that he's a corrupt judge. It'll go on to say that if one wished to contend with him, you couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. In verses 4 through 12, he goes on to detail the majesty and the power of God, saying things like, He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. He removes mountains. He shakes the earth out of its place. He commands the sun and stretches out the heavens. He does great things beyond searching out. And what it seems that Job is doing here in this response and wrestling with the suffering that's come upon him, he's trying to find some kind of anchor. He's trying to find something that he can just hold on to. Because it seems like everything around is just confusion and chaos and he can't make sense of what's up and down, left and right. So he needs to find something. Something that he can grab onto. Something that can give him even the smallest bit of stability. For Job, what he's able to grab onto is this idea that, that God is the one who possesses power incontestable. That no force of chaos, no circumstance, nothing can challenge the power that God has. And in some ways, truthfully, I have to say, anytime I've faced some sort of difficulty, the idea that God has power incontestable isn't always the most comforting idea. 
Because what naturally is the next thing you think? Well, if he's got all the power, why can't he just pull me out of this? Right? I mean, nothing can stop him. So, at least for me, it seems to be, it's not always the most comforting thing. And yet it is true. And so even though something might be true but not comforting, Job is showing, I have to find at least the true thing. And he will wrestle with that, and we'll get into that. But the first thing that we see Job teaching us is that we have to hold tight to what's true. Because in all of the chaos and confusion, it's very difficult to find our way forward, to find anything that makes sense. And we've got to find that thing that's true, that we know about God. We can trust about his character. We hold on tight to it. Because it's one thing to believe something about God when things, when things are just sort of still and easy. But it's another thing to believe those things about God when your whole life is turned upside down. One writer put it like this, that believers understand many doctrinal truths in the mind, but those truths seldom make the journey down into the heart except through disappointment, failure, and loss. There's something about suffering that takes what we know up here. What we'll be so quick to say, well, this is true and you just got to believe it. But when suffering comes, it takes those things and it presses them down deeper. It's as if suffering is an act of God digging out our souls a little bit deeper to implant his truth a little bit further down. And one of the things that I find so difficult, as I mentioned, it when you're in a place of suffering, just the amount of confusion, the, you're not really sure what's true or where even to find it. So we grasp for that one thing. And yet, in my own experience, I've found that the best reminders, the best anchors are the tangible ones. The ones that I can touch and see and taste and feel. Because, let's be honest, the the faith that we have, that we believe it with all sincerity. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. We can't see the face of God. We can't look into his eyes. So when the world's turned upside down, it's hard to know, where can I find God? And would I even know what he looks like if I saw him? So my own experience, I've found that something as simple as the Lord's Supper can be so valuable a reminder or a friend who is able to sit with me in the confusion and to pray through it that real expression of of God's presence that I can I can touch I can feel it I can see it right there next to me and I I have to confess that I went through a, a long season where I hated going to church which is exactly what you want to hear from a pastor right uh I disliked it so strongly, though, because it felt like as much as I didn't want to be there, that God wasn't really that interested in being there either. And I don't know if that's absolutely true. I mean, how could I know? But at least my experience of it, it seemed that that it was all just a show. And this wasn't a church that was, you know, having the lights and the fog. Like It wasn't a show, but it was still a show, if you know what I mean. But, you know, I 
I'd pick myself up. I would get myself to church, truthfully, out of duty more than anything else. And looking back, I know that there was sort of this small, faint, flickering hope that, well, maybe, maybe today, maybe this week God will show up. And week after week, what I, what I found that was keeping that small flicker of hope burning was this simple, tangible act of taking a bread, taking a cup. And I'm, I'm convinced why, this is at least in part why Jesus gave us this practice and told to do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because he knew that this life of faith can be disorienting and confusing, that it seems like there are problems in this world that faith just cannot solve. So we need something that we can hold in our hands, something that we can taste, that we can carry with us, so that every bite we take after that, every word that we speak has the taste of bread and wine on our tongue. That it gives me a chance to, I, I know the truth of the gospel up here, but I can see it in, in my hands. That I can hold in my hand the reminder that Jesus knows what it's like to be ripped apart by this world. Jesus knows what it's like to hear the, the door of heaven being bolted and double bolted as the life drains out of him. That I can hold that reminder in my hand. That that can become that that truth that I hold on to tightly. That, that that can be the thing that reminds me that I am I am following in the way of my Savior, who Isaiah would call the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So he knows what it's like. He is my, as the writer of Hebrews would say, my sympathetic high priest. He has been tempted and torn apart in every way by this world. And he says, hold this reminder in your hands. That can become that truth that we can hold on tightly to. We need those reminders. And that's the first thing we see in Job. The second thing, starting in verse 13, is that we have to wade through what feels arbitrary. And I guess maybe first I should say, you need to know it's okay to say, this feels arbitrary. This feels it feels like God is just gone. We've got to wade through those feelings of arbit- that what feels arbitrary. Look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. Though I am in the right, I can't answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Yet if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. That even though God is powerful, Job just said that, coming right on the heels. He says, God is all-powerful, but I'm not so sure he cares. And the question, that comes, why would he do that? It feels like the greatest and final cruelty in a long list of tribulations. That he would act in such a way that seems so purposeless. So at odds with his character. And I thought of this during one of the most darkest moments of his life, following the death of his wife, writing in his journal, which would later become the book A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis says this, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But 
so this is what God's really like. And I've found that the problem with reducing God to our beliefs about God is that it can create this illusion that we fully understood him. That we, we've got him. We know what he does, we know who he is, and we know how he acts. But the truth is that there remain untold mysteries and depths to the person of God that we will spend eternity discovering. And when we reduce God to beliefs, it can sort of thin God out. Like he's not this dynamic, personal being that we relate to. But he's just sort of this thin, wispy personality, if anything at all. And that, you know, sort of beg, begs the question, how do, how do we wade through this then? We're in this place where we're, like Lewis, are going, I'm scared of coming to the place where I go, so this is what God's like. Because all of this seems at odds with what I thought was true about him. I know his character, but his actions, I don't get that. One of these has got to be true. And from our perspective, it's hard to know, to see how they fit together. And so we think one of these has got to be true. And I, I'm not so sure about what I've believed about him. So what do, what do we do? You know, I, I've found that the best thing for me to do is to get him out of my head. Get all of the thoughts and the feelings that are just swirling around. Just get them out of my head. It can look like typing on a computer or writing on a piece of paper. For me, I found writing it out on a piece of it, it, it has a way of making it feel more real. Like I can really get my hands around it. But I just, I have learned in moments like these that the simple act of just journaling would be a huge help to me. And what I had come to do is I will take a notebook, doesn't really matter what, and I will just, in the middle of the page, just start writing out everything I'm thinking, everything I'm feeling, all of the stuff. None of it's pretty, by the way. Can we just acknowledge it's okay to write out some ugly stuff? Because God knows it's in there. I'll just get it out. And I'll do that in a blue pen. And then I'll take a red pen. And I'll start to write around it. Verses that come to mind. Or if I'm reading through the Psalms or wherever I am, just verses that stand, I'll write them around it. And blue, that's just incidental. I have a lot of blue pens, so I use that one. The red one, though, that's intentional. Because, number one, the red stands out. It grabs my attention before the rest of it does. But also because it, it becomes a reminder to me that as I write on the top and the sides and the bottom of the page, that the blood of Jesus covers all of these things. It covers the confusion. covers the pain. It reminds me, like we said earlier, that Jesus is the man of sorrows who has felt these things, who has wrestled with in these ways. And that because he is the man of sorrows, because he suffered in my place, that then gives me the freedom to say, God, it's a mess in here, and it's a mess in here, and I'm not sure where you are. And I've also found that it, it can become sort of a, almost a prayer. As I'm writing out these words from God around everything I'm thinking and feeling, as if to say, Lord, 
I don't know that this here in the middle is going to change anytime soon, but I need you to fence around me to make sure that what I'm feeling in here doesn't lead me outside of what you have said. What you have told me is true because I need something to ground me. I need something to help make sense of all of this. And I found that it really helps me to wade through all this, to wrestle with what I know to be true about God and yet what seems to be so arbitrary in his actions. To eventually, slowly help me to find clarity in all of this. Who are you, he said. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. It was, the voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you a, a giant, asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I'm not like the creature you call giants. I can't see you at all. He said after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, You're not something dead, are you? Please go away. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his face and said, There, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or his mother and had been brought up sternly by a fisherman. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions, forced to swim for their lives, and of all the dangers they faced, and about his night in the tombs, and how beasts howled at him out of the desert. And then he told him about the heat and the thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded his friend, and also how it was very long since he had had anything to eat. This mysterious person, this thing that this boy finds, invites him to confide in him all of those troubles, all of those things that have haunted him his whole life, and yet even most recently, the trouble after trouble that he seems to constantly be facing. And most of his life felt like just one meaningless suffering after another. And I, I thought of, at this point, the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, being this man who was opposed to everything that the church stood for. On his way to kill more Christians, and here Jesus meets him on the road, knocks him on his horse, and blinds him. And eventually, as the story goes, this man comes to him and tells him what the Lord has done and what he's going to do with this man. And then Luke tells us that something like scales fell from his eyes. And what's so interesting about that is, as Paul had just experienced a new faith, he needed new eyes. He couldn't keep on seeing the world and what God, who God was and what he was doing with the same old eyes that he had before. He needed a new sight, a new way of seeing things. Similarly with us, by wading through the, all that we feel and all that seems arbitrary with God, we can find at least some clarity on the nature and purpose of God. By holding tight to the truth and wading through it, that maybe God might press something deeper into us. 
that was once just an idea but becomes more real to us. There's, a, there's another thing that Job shows us, though, and I think this one is, is huge for us. And number three, that we have to fight the temptation to pretend. Look at what he says in verse 20, 25 to 35, specifically verse 27. If I say, I will forget my complaint, and I will put off my sad face, be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. And I, I have found this to be more true than most things, that when we are suffering in any way, all of us feel this intense pressure and expectation to just get over it. Especially if it's carried on for a little bit longer, we, we start to feel like, well, we, just, we, we shouldn't be caring this much about it still. And uh, Pastor Dodds and I at uh, Sojourn Heights, we're both preaching the same passage today, obviously in different places. Um, but we, were, we had met together and we're talking about this, talking through the sermon, talking through the text. And he made this comment that he said that at times he's thought to himself that I wish this was over so I could get back to being myself. And I thought, that's so true. That one of the challenges of any sort of suffering is we feel like we've become this person that we never thought we would be, and we just wish that we could go back to who we were. We could go back to that season of life or that place. And, and we expect everyone else is sort of saying, man, I wish that this would get over soon so they could go back to being who they were. But here's, here's the interesting thing that Job, I mean, the words are barely out of his lips, saying, I'm just going to pretend, I'm going to act like this is okay. But the truth is, you know, that it's, you, you can only come, cover up pain with a smile for so long. Right? It, it's, as soon as he says it, his next words are, I become afraid of all my suffering. One of the things that I've learned I learned from a man who was a, a mentor of mine, a man I cared for deeply who died unexpectedly. He was a professor of mine in seminary, but he had also been a uh, gynecologist for years. And he had become a friend And during a, a season when we were really trying hard to conceive. And it just seemed like week after week, month after month, nothing was happening. He was a huge help to us. And we ended up conceiving Noah through that. And then what proved to be a difficult pregnancy, he cared for both Whitney and me for a really challenging season. But even before all that, in an even harder ministry season, he had become a, a mentor and a counselor to me. So I had come to love this man. And it was three years ago this past Wednesday that he died. He'd gone out on a bike ride. A little bit later, people found him fallen over on the street. And one of the things that he had taught me was that a death like that, it, it will sting for a little bit, except for everyone who was a close loved one. That might sting the rest of their lives. And so while the rest of us will feel compassion and will grieve with them, maybe for a month, maybe two, our lives move on. And yet there's still this deep hole in their life. And so he taught me one of the most loving things you can do for somebody is just remember those days. 
Remember the day when they lost someone. And when that day comes around, just send them a note. Tell them, hey, I remember what happened. And so in, in trying to learn from this man that I respected so much, I had messaged his widow just to say, I'm sorry. I know today's a hard day. Now, I was grieving with her that we're still praying for her. And she wrote back simply to say thank you. That even all these years later, it still hurts. The shock is still there. The loss is still felt. That hasn't changed. And yet, she can also admit how, how much of a temptation it is to act like she's over it. I mean, it's been three years, right? It still hurts. It's still shocking. And yet in her very gracious response, I learned just how, how much you can minister to somebody through a, a simple and unsolicited, I'm sorry. No solutions, no ideas, no trying to peer beyond the veil to figure out what's happening, but just simply, I'm sorry. This still hurts. And the other thing that both of them taught me is that it's really not up to you and to me to determine how long is appropriate for someone to struggle with strong emotions or the pain of loss and suffering. We don't get to decide that. And I can admit, I'm, I'm the worst offender. But one of the worst things that we can do to somebody who is in the midst of great suffering is to treat them like, man, you should be over this by now. Right? Because I want to move on. Is really what it comes down to. I'm tired of talking about this. Can we move on to something else? And that, that could be one of the worst things that somebody could do. That could just, man, that could just be salt in the wound. So we have to learn, don't pretend like everything's okay. Hold tight to the truth. We wade through all of these things that feels arbitrary, but we don't pretend like everything's okay. The final thing that we see in Job is we need to learn to give voice to that inner turmoil. We see that in chapter 10. That in verse 1 he says, I will give free utterance to my complaint and speak in the bitterness of my soul. In the heart of this free reign in his speech we see in verse 2 that I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. And what follows in the rest of chapter 10 is anything but pretty. It is raw. It is honest. It is painful. And yet it's commended. When all of this is said and done and we get to the end, we hear God say to Job that he has said everything right. And it's his friends who now have to ask for Job to intercede for them. He speaks bluntly, but he speaks to God. Everything he says to God, he says in prayer. And I, I've, I've seen in my own life that suffering, unlike anything else, teaches me how to pray. And, it, you know, it's not, it's not like I'm some great saint that I just, you know, pray all the time with these unceasing prayers. I mean, if you squeeze an orange hard enough, juice is going to come out. But it seems that in suffering, at least in my own life, God knows just how to squeeze me to get prayer to come out. 
And it was around a time when I was probably in one of the hardest seasons that a, a different professor taught me how to pray the Psalms. And I'd never thought of that before. But it was a, a really simple practice. He calls it the Psalm of the Day. And, it, you know, there's 150 Psalms and on average about 30 days in a month. And so you just take the day of the month. So today's the, I don't know, the 17th. And then you just take five Psalms, this Psalm 17, Psalm 47, Psalm 77, so on. And you just look through those Psalms, and if one just grabs you, you can use that to pray and to become sort of a launching pad into prayer. And I have, I have never experienced something that has helped me in prayer more effectively because there's something about the Psalms. They just speak to every season of the soul. The Psalms have taught me how to thank God for the good that he's done. They've taught me how to pound on the chest of God when it seems that nothing is working. They've taught me how to cry, how to plead with God, how to pray for friends and family. Because what's interesting is a lot of these Psalms, you'll see in the notes that have been included for us, that even the Psalms came out of trouble or reflection on trouble and gratitude for what God had done. The Psalms teach us to do the very thing that suffering is pulling out of us. And you, you might notice by this point that most of the application of the things that we see in Job, they're really just what we call spiritual disciplines. Ways of really taking the truth of our faith and making it more real in every part of our life, whether it's praying the scripture or journaling, taking the sacraments, ways that make it real, make it tangible, make it something we can touch and taste. And maybe praying the Psalms, maybe doing exactly what my professor taught me to do might be the best thing that you could do. Even if you're not in a place of suffering, but that might be a time that the Lord would use to teach you how to pray. Because if, if we don't learn how to give full vent of all of these things that we're feeling, all the arbitrariness, trying to find the truth of God, feeling that pressure to pretend, all of these things, if we can learn to voice those to God, he might make us more compassionate people, empathetic people. We might learn to have a more patient listening ear which the more I see and the longer I live, I think that in these days that we're living in, the most powerful presentation of the gospel to people could be as simple as a listening ear. Because I've found that most people have no one that they can go to to just pour out all this stuff. And I'm not going to criticize you, look you sideways, like, you really think that? You're feeling that? Good night, okay? But to just simply and patiently and compassionately listen. And I have to wonder, what, what if a church like Sojourn Galleria, what if, what if we became people who listen? People who heard the struggles and the confusion and the pain of all of our friends and neighbors, what might that do to a community like this? 
what might it communicate to people who, who feel like there's no place to turn, and yet now here are these people who listen? That maybe they would come to believe that there is a God who listens and shows even greater compassion. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with your friend. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach the king in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. So it was you who wounded my friend. It was. But what for? Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt happy, too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he was talking to the thing, he had not been noticing. And now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead he heard birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and the ears and the head of a horse quite clearly now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw, pacing behind him, taller than a horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid, or else it could not see it. It was the lion from which the light came. And no one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. In this story, Lewis is painting a vivid picture for us that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the confusion and the absolute feeling of meaningless in life, that there our God is walking with us. And that the day will come when the darkness lifts and the light shines and we will realize that it's not from circumstances that the light shines, but from our God himself whose presence puts everything in proper perspective. And yet, in the meantime, we walk in the darkness, 
straining with eyes of faith and yet still straining to know that he is there on the edges. And it's just in due time that he will begin to speak again. He will draw close again. And the darkness will finally lift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a book like Job, as hard as it is. We thank you also, Lord, for stories like the horse and his boy that can give us a different perspective on what you're doing and the struggles of this life. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold tightly onto truth, however small it might be. That you would help us to feel the freedom to wrestle with you in what seems to be so arbitrary. That we would be a people, God, that feel the freedom and give the freedom to not have to pretend, but to wrestle well for as long as necessary. That, God, we would be people that you would teach us to pray to pray honestly, to pray openly, to pray in a way that is real and faithful. And that we would do so knowing that our God walks with us, that he too is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And that we can, as people of faith in him, can walk that we may be defeated in this life, that victory is coming. We ask that in the name of Christ. Amen.